everybody. Happy Thursday. Happy Thirsty Thursday. Thirsty Thursday. We are sponsored by Guinness today. Coming to you live from Goats here in Columbia, South Carolina. We are not some Yankees from Connecticut. We know what we're talking about. Where you can't buy proper AR-15 magazines. We have many guns in our gun safes at the house. Uh, this is our favorite OR in Columbia. It's a very lawyer-centric bar, um, particularly for defense lawyers. So some of our knowledgeable folks may pop in, and we might have to drag them in and give some opinions on certain things. So far, there's only a couple shy, um, renowned lawyers. Oh, hey. oh there's, oh, there's, oh, there's a lawyer. Here comes a less shy oh, lawyer. Oh, I'm sorry. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll yeah, bring you in in a second. Are you using a meeting? I'll show you guys kind of what's going on here. We've got a little lawyer happy hour going on. Lots <laughs> lots of South Carolina lawyers here. Um, I don't think Dick is going to show up tonight. But who knows? A lot of hardcore, rabid criminal defense lawyers. Yeah. All with a lot of knowledge, but bias, as we've talked about around bias, but we try to be objective about this as well. Yes, yes, no bias. Um, if you can't admit your bias, then you're just lying to yourself. There you go. Everybody has bias. Um, but what happened? Hold on, hold on, hold on. See, we're already we're already at Guinness Inn, so we need to go ahead and introduce everything. So, my name is Hannah. This is Brian and Luke Sheely of the Sheely Law Firm, located in Columbia, South Carolina, and Charleston, South Carolina. Um, they are identical twins, which is a fun fact. Podcast, vodcast, um, credited after the awesome uh, Judge Newman in his famous line, Bring the Jury. Bring the Jury. Who are currently very, very busy deliberating on on everything. So I'll pass it to you guys now, kind of take away what happened today. Right. We had um, Jim Griffin get a chance to show his stuff. And you know, his, his background is a prosecution background, and he referenced that a lot. In his closing argument, um, you know, before this trial, Luke and I had not really seen him do much of anything, really. I mean, he kind of works in a federal system for the most part that is mostly not in front of a jury. There's a lot of white-collar crimes, that kind of stuff. So I've never seen him actually in a jury trial. But we knew that between Jim Griffin and Dick Carpuglian, he was best suited to talk to this Colleton jury. Um, he can kind of relate a little bit better. He's also, even though he's a well thought of lawyer in legal circles, he's not overly arrogant. You know, he doesn't come across as arrogant in front of the jury. And his first kind of line of his closing was almost apologetic. I'm sorry that you have to, to be here. You know, Luke and I, um, you know, we're trial lawyers and we appreciate lawyers that can really have the art of persuasion. Hey ho, hey ho. Hi, we'll bring you in in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're gonna get your opinion on the murder. Give us your trial. thoughts. Oh god, I have not been watching that closely. Um but, not Jim, guilty, but Jim Griffin um, maybe isn't schooled in the art of persuasion 
so to speak. Not like how John Metters was, we'll talk about that in a second, but Jim Griffin definitely had a masterful ability to recall all the facts. And you know, he didn't have a PowerPoint. And I you know, one critique is that he was he was relying upon Doug. I mean, we should have a whole offshoot of this podcast just about Doug. I mean some clerk of court it was very helpful Doug, with the technical stuff. Without Doug None of this trial would be possible because all these lawyers are relying on Doug to pull up this exhibit, that exhibit. And so Jim Griffin, didn't, he wasn't operating his own technology. He was asking Doug to pull up various things. And you know, he was really spent, like I, like I thought he would do, a lot of his time trying to attack the state's uh, sloppiness, the sleds almost you know, indifference to to the investigation. You know, they didn't want certain things done. They they didn't preserve certain things in a very good way. Yeah, well, I think we can bring it in a little closer. We're gonna bring it in. Whatever viewers said I look like John Hamm, to you, sir, or later, <laughs> I, I will raise a glass to that. Oh, well, wait a second, we're twins, so what? Oh yeah, they're don't twins. I, don't I get a little John Hamm yeah, love? You're know, all be speckled and bearded. And, you know, you're John Turkey. Well, I'm just kidding. The, the pollen has me just speckled today, I will say. Um, all right, is the sound better um, now that we are a little bit closer? How are we doing? Can we hear? Good. Awesome. But, you know, oh. okay, go ahead. so what Jim Griffin lacked in maybe persuasion, closing argument techniques, he did have a good handle on the facts, and he just he kind of methodically went through what he believes will allow jurors to have reasonable doubt. Luke, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, again... Or do you want to talk about why you're so mad today? We can talk about that in a little bit. I'll get my general critique on Jim Griffin first. I think it was definitely the right choice for him to do it. He is probably not as adept with his white collar background and federal system <coughs> as doing jury trials in state court, it requires great persuasion. Um, there's a lot of techniques to that. He did not come across as arrogant, which had, had been kind of a problem, mansplaining, all that. Um, but he, you know, when you, pop, when you start by apologizing in this kind of conversational tone, his job is to persuade people of things that they hadn't thought they could view or consider. That's really your job as a zealous advocate. And from a trial persuasion standpoint, um, not so great. But from a kind of, hey guys, I'm here, you know, let me talk to you about doubt. He made some pretty good points. You know, he described the motive, but just not making a lot of sense. I tried to articulate why. How it really you know, put an international microscope on Murdoch. It didn't, it didn't really buy him much time. Um, you know, he's talking about the timeline is based on if your phone is not being responsive, then you're dead, apparently. I would love to have seen him, while he's talking for about 30 minutes, get about 10 texts from Dick Arpuglia, and then pull out his phone and put it on the Elmo and show it to the jury and be like, Apparently I died 30 minutes ago because I didn't read those texts. I mean, you have to like blow somebody's mind. You have to blow their doors off and really empower that jury to make them feel like they've been drugged down in the muck 
by the state in that they've been flooded with crimes that will be handled in another court simply to think that Murdoch is a bad guy, which he is. But being a bad guy does not mean you are a family annihilator, as Creighton Water says. So I really wanted um, some more true trial persuasion. I mean, state court murder trials are like a night fight in a phone booth. It's, it's not this sterile, sanitized thing that you see in federal court. So he's at a disadvantage, but I think he did pretty well. He made some good points. We can talk about some of those points. I'll basically give him a, a B minus. But you know, to have a, a, a chance of winning with all this overwhelming financial crime evidence, I think you need an A plus closing, honestly. So that's, that's what I'll say. Yeah, you never want to apologize for for being there, you really want to, and my brother and my, you know, we're twins and we're best friends, but we're also pretty competitive with each other. And Luke is one of the best closers in the game. And, and you know, one thing that Luke does, and it's hard for me to say, so it must be true for my brother, is he really, when he's getting ready to close, he draws the jury in and Luke will often have a, a, a long moment of silence. That pregnant pause, as they call it. Where the juror's like, well, when's he going to talk? But it gets their attention. Maybe it's a minute. And then he'll begin with something emphatic that just rips them up out of their seat. And so that's a, in stark contrast to Jim Griffin today, who's apologizing for everyone having to be here, for the case being so long. It's your duty to do this kind of job. And let, he kind of built the, the jurors up a little bit by saying that we've got the best criminal justice system in, in the world, and we do. Um, but I just didn't like the apologetic tone that he took initially, but he was more relatable in terms of between the two lawyers, um, Harper Lynn and Jim Griffin. But he, he really, you know, um, we'll talk about the, the, the screw up later on, but like, he started just attacking the case. I mean, he did get into the crime scene. You know, he made, he just kind of, he had a bunch of notes and he just kind of, he didn't really have a theme. Other than this, let me go through all of the reasonable doubt in this case in a systematic way, and you'll just get it. There was no theme like the state had where you had the storms gathering. There's no theme like the state had where the, the hounds are at your gate. I mean, you know, I, I feel like John Metters is a much, much better closer than Creighton Waters. Creighton's got a good understanding of all the facts in the case, but like, Jim didn't really have a theme, other than saying the state's theme was ridiculous, but he didn't have anything that he could like latch onto. He really didn't, he did not. He just went through his notes and said, this is reasonable doubt, this is reasonable doubt, this is reasonable doubt. Um, you wanna talk about some of the doubt that he was bringing out to the jury today, Luke? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he attacked the timeline, trying to dispute the fact that if your phone is not being responded to, then you must be dead. I mean, that's not a scientific timeline. That's not a pathology timeline. But of course, the timeline is very tight. But he tried to embrace that kind of video. It's, it's the best piece of evidence for the state. But he said, look, he's down there, and that's a normal family dynamic. Listen to their voices, the people that knew him best. You know, they don't seem concerned. They don't see, hey, Big Red, Daddy, why are you holding that gun? Oh, Hannah, you got a hat. <laughs> I know where to go. Uh, left. So he's he's trying to embrace the bad evidence, which is always a good technique. Um, I've been thinking about this case for a long time. I'll jump around a little bit. There are a couple things, that, thoughts that had not occurred to me. 
Uh, so uh, I will arrogantly say that the thought has not occurred to me that it must be something special. Uh, but one of the things he said about the data of him driving so fast to Alameda and driving back so fast, I mean, Creighton Waters makes a big point to say he's trying to manufacture a timeline and get himself away quickly from the crime scene, make it seem like he's at Alameda more than he really is. And that makes sense if you're driving there, but if you're driving back, that doesn't make sense. You would want to go slower than normal. You wouldn't want to be driving the same speed. So that was pretty inconsistent. That didn't make a lot of oh, sense. Oh, thank you. And that was very interesting to point that out. Um, so I did enjoy that. Um, you know, he just really hammered that. I was disappointed to not see him reenact that shotgun. What would you have wanted him to do? If you haven't seen our latest uh, video, we do our own uh, reenactment. With a broom. With a broom, which we understand may not be exactly the length of the shotgun used, but... I would want him to reenact I mean, whether it's, I mean, Harper Lane is not a particularly tall guy. I think he's getting a little, you know, a little shorter with age. Probably about 5'8". Well, bring in a mannequin. Make sure it's 5'8". Get a protractor. Do a 45 degree angle. All those Benelli's were the same. It's just like whether it's a Model 1, 2, or 3. They're the same length. So get the Benelli evidence and put it at a 45 degree angle, two and a half to three feet away, to show there's no sibling, and see where the butt of that Benelli is on the floor. It will be... If not impossibly low, it would be very awkwardly low to be making a kill shot basically while squatting on the floor directly below an assailant. Uh, I mean, directly below a victim. That's just a very bizarre position for an assailant. So I wanted to see that. I wanted to see it on cross. I never saw it. Um, so that would be one, one critique is you got to bring that visual. There's a lot of, of talk. Jurors are bored at this point. They want the visual. Yeah, so we are, we are relying on Doug um, for the visual aid. I mean, John Metters objected a couple times. Um, one objection was, I think he was concerned about, I mean, basically they're taking YouTube videos of the court proceedings and, they're, and he's splicing them into his closing to show how, like, Blanca said, you know, that they were, like, the love of each other's life. How, like, the kennel kind of keeper, who was such an interesting guy, said that they seemed like he was, like, best friends with his family. So, like, so he did, I did like how he used actual trial testimony. I mean, sometimes you'll see in normal trials when a lawyer wants to use testimony from the, the trial itself, they'll, pull, they'll get a transcript and they'll blow it up on a big whiteboard. But this is, you know, obviously a huge international phenomenon. I mean, here we are talking about it on TikTok, right? So, at Goats. At Goats. So, um, but he was able to take YouTube live video and play it. And I thought that was pretty good. I mean, he didn't have a PowerPoint. He was kind of rambling around on his notes, but he, you know, he, I'm sure he caught the jurors' attention when he was playing all that. Um, so that, I thought that was good. You know, it was just a reasonable doubt act. Reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt. You know, all the things that we've been talking about, all the things that everyone knows. You know, he had to explain the lie. I mean, he, you know, I will say this, in terms of reasonable doubt, he did bring out effectively and reminded the jurors that SLED lied to the state grand jury to get the warrant. They lied when they said that um, Alec Murdoch had a bloody shirt that was full of Paul's blood on it which turned out to be a fabrication. Now, the state never used that in trial, 
but you know the defense is allowed to present a full and complete defense and so that because that that document got turned over they, they were able to flesh it out and attack the, the integrity of law enforcement and so the jurors aware of it and they also uh, he was able to bring out the fact that uh, the lead case agent misled the jury, uh, excuse me, the state grand jury, about uh, you know four different shotguns in the house that had both birdshot and buckshot. So bringing out the either mistruths or, or outright misinformation to the grand jury to get a, a, a probable cause warrant on this case reminded them about how we started. And you know, he did say some things too. I, I, we were on WLTX last night and I mentioned this. Jim Griffin is baked into this case. He is literally in two interviews about this case. He's in well, the second car interview with Agent Owens. He's also on the line in the confession to the to lying about the suicide attempt from rehab. He was already representing Paul on the boat, felony charges. And so I was wondering, in the recap last night on WLTX, one of our local news stations, if he was going to insert himself into closing, basically vouch for his client, vouch for his relationship with his family, and he did, he did that. I mean, I don't think he did a good job in terms of persuasion. He did what, he did what was within himself, which was to be very masterful of the facts, not try to get, he was almost like a guy with a, a really uh, well-noted uh, like notepad sitting on a park bench with a friend trying to talk about why he understood something. It was not persuasive, but it was like, it was relatable, I will say. And then at the very end was when he got the most persuasive when he said, listen, I, Paul was a friend, Maggie was a friend, and I know that my client didn't kill them. And he choked up, and it was, it was real, true, actual emotion. And so he was, even though, for all the reasons that he said all along, that he's, he's wrongly in this case, don't let your client talk, don't let him be on recorded uh, interviews. For all these reasons, he's in it, but he was able to use that at the very end and kind of humbly and emotionally vouch for his own belief in his client's innocence in a real way. And that was probably the best part of his closing. Um, so, okay, let's, let's take some questions. Sure. Um, so, walk us through like what the jury's deliberation will look like. Like, what what steps will they go through? What responsibilities will the poor lady have? How will they get to their conclusion? Do they write down, you know, different votes do they like I guess talk us through all of that religious things. Some of it is a mystery but they will take back all Judge Newman's instructions. They will be in written form and they'll have it at a table to read. And it's not that complicated here. You've got murder <laughs> and they get instructed what it is. They get told about reasonable doubt, credibility, presumption of the innocence. But you know they're gonna start Gauging each other. They're going to debate, they're going to battle, they're going to compromise, they're going to try to persuade each other. And this is all under the, the backdrop of having been there for going on six weeks. They are tired. Some of them might feel very passionate about the case, some of them could care less. And so, you know, it's really, it depends on the makeup of the jury and how duty bound they feel. Um, and so you hope that just for the, the process and the system, 
Do they care? Do they know how much each side respectively cares on their positions? And you hope that they do that honor and justice because, you know, at this point, it's not like they just wasted a day. They have, have really devoted a substantial chunk of their year to this case. And so you hope that they do it justice, they deliberate, they ask each other questions. You know, and I think they'll probably start right out the gates by doing a head count. All right, who, who finds guilty, who thinks he's innocent or, or is undecided? And they'll just draw lines in the sand and then they'll start gathering the evidence to try to to review it and see if it can influence anybody. That's typically how this will happen. Um, and I, yeah, I've been, I don't know if this will be a question coming up, but in my experience, in my opinion, is if it comes back tonight with a verdict under four hours, it's guilty. Oh yeah, it comes back tonight, it's guilty. And what's the longest a jury has ever deliberated? I think I saw 55 days. I mean, oh man, I don't know. I think the longest currently is 55 days. It was in Oakland, California for, I don't even know, it was like three police officers were facing some charge. I don't know, but we could be here for 55 days. Well, Who knows? <laughs> or three hours, so, we'll see. If they're, they, if they're deliberating tomorrow, that's a win for the defense. Right. I mean, not that they will get acquitted, but that is good that they're still thinking about everything, given the overwhelming evidence of all his other lies and crimes. That's a very hard thing for a jury to separate. And even even though the jurors for all these six weeks have been strictly instructed, you cannot talk about this case until, until Judge Newman gives them the case. They're getting to know each other. They're getting to know each other's quirks and personalities. There's jurors that are becoming friends. I mean, you were talking last night, we had a jury trial where like a couple hooked up. Uh, we're holding hands at the end of the jury trial. They were strangers when they came in. And at the end of the week jury trial, they were holding hands at the end of it. Uh, so like, so and we had a we had a jury member get kicked off this morning. She apparently she had it was disclosed that she had uh, conversations with people about this case that were not the jury, and she was talking to outside sources and deliberating essentially uh, prematurely. Yikes! So that means that we are down to just the one alternate, correct? And that okay. This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen when they were discussing like kind of what position or what to do essentially with the alternate does she stay is she free to go you know all, all the different things and they asked you know the state they asked the defense and then at the end they asked alex himself if he would like for the alternate to remain or if she or i don't know if it was a he or she was like free to go that was wild what have you ever seen something like that no and you know that it doesn't happen so court protocol, procedure, etiquette, the judge has complete control of his courtroom or her courtroom. And you can tell that from the way Judge Newman operates. I mean, everyone respects his authority, but by statute, by codified law, you know, once the jury gets the case, the alternates that are left get excused. And Judge Newman usually his practice is to thank them for their service, let them know that they're an integral part of the system and say you can stay if you want to find out what happens or you can just leave. But never, ever 
has a, a an alternate juror be essentially sequestered away from the main jury in a separate room without their phone and, and by agreement from the parties be asked to stay, well not asked, be instructed to stay in case something happens in this jury. I, I think both sides are thinking, we started with six alternates, now we're down to one. What if someone gets sick? And, and they invested so much in this. Both sides have invested so much time and energy and resources and they just did something that I've never seen done in South Carolina, and it happened, happened today. So a lot of people are asking, you know, if you were on the jury, would you decide guilty or not guilty? I think it would kind of be fun, since we have a lot of attorneys in the building, to get a few to come over here, and we could almost do like a small shadow jury, uh, or like mock jury here. Now they are all criminal defense lawyers. Okay, so, so all criminal defense. You're not going to get... Uh, Asking to be objective, but we can. Uh, who should we hail? Let's get Laura Young. Okay, okay. Now, all right. So we're gonna do our own little little jury over here. The person we're bringing first is a rabid. Hey Tim. Get him in here. Yes. Yeah. Tim, you're gonna be part of our jury. He's making a friend. Yes, we are drinking Guinness. I was feeling a little under under the weather today, and apparently uh, Guinness are good for that. It's like medicine. All right, All right so we have uh, juror number zero zero four. Okay. Uh, rabid criminal defense lawyer, by the way. So she was so busy being rabid, she may not have been following this trial. But people want to know. Let's introduce her. This is Laura Young. Brilliant, smart, funny. Uh, Deputy, deputy public defender here. <laughs> she has very fun hair. And uh, we've tried cases with her. She knows what she's talking about. And just straight out. We actually tried a double murder in front of Judge Newman with right. her in the Right, true. that double murder that we have referenced um, from time to time. So it's still under some motions. But I guess what was the question? Good, good so, yeah, are, if, you were, if you were on the jury, mm -hmm. what, what objectively, would you say? Objectively. 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 Based on... And she has sat on a jury before. I did. A federal jury. A civil jury. jury. Yeah. What would I say? I... Okay. It's really hard for me to be objective, you guys. I don't actually know. I think I would I think I think would be voting guilty. There's just... I, I can't get past the line about being at the dog kennel. That is good that evidence. Is, that's the best point for the state. The right? lie. The, that is pretty tough. The, the lie that was easy and convincing, as Craig Morris keeps saying. All right, so we've got one, one guilty. Luke, we all know what you would say. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what you would say. What would you say? I have been asked this question. I don't think he did the shooting. I think he knows way more than he did. Uh, reveal. I think he chose a certain strategy and theory that he thought would help. Um, I think it has a lot to do with his drug use, drug ties. Um, you know, I'm a man of science. I like science and doesn't lie. I love science and crime scene. And I you just don't like the circumstantial nature of the evidence. Circumstantial evidence is all well and good. Judge Newman instructed the jury on that. It's true. But I haven't heard anything about any argument, any anything. All the so-called motive did was get a microscope up his ass. 
Obsessed with the lie that Alec told initially, but I'd be thinking about all the doubt in the case. I think if I were a jury member, I would be compelled, if I'm following the law, to probably say I'm undecided. And and I think my guesstimate would be a hung jury. Um, Unless they just hate him so much because he's done so many people so wrong, which is, is why the state wanted to get in that that motive evidence, which is really just bad character evidence. Um, but I, I, my gut says punk. I agree. I thought I was just voting for myself. Like my first yeah, so you gotta, you gotta vote for, like, yeah. so you gotta, you gotta decide. Guilty or not oh. guilty. Well, I think he's, I think he's not guilty of the actual crime, but he's not telling the truth about who certainly did the crime, and I think he knows. That's, that's my opinion on that. So you vote not guilty. Not guilty. We hang that thing up. All right. <laughs> um, um, I, may, I am going to find this interesting because I'm pretty persuadable, though. Yeah. Oh, we need these guys. Oh, yeah. Let me. Let me. We've got, we've got, got more jurors. Oh, thank you. Oh, and it's happy birthday. Get in. Quick, get in and get in and be a juror. All right. Yep. Another lawyer. A very good lawyer. Very passionate lawyer. Very smart. We don't know how much she's been following this Murdoch trial, but. But the question from the viewers is, what would what would the our vote be if we were on a jury? So now you may not have enough evidence to make that decision, but just go ahead and give them. But based on what you, she's been involved in her own murder trial for the past five weeks. That's right. That's right. Uh, she know a little bit. Um, I have no there idea. Are there are murder trials going on. I know, right? Apparently. Um, I really have no idea, except it seems like he pled guilty to 99 uh, fraudulent transaction things, so he's definitely guilty of those. If you got one year for all 99 of those, they're dying in prison, which I don't want for anybody, but I don't know the whole murder story. A very good point. <laughs> A very good point that the jury will probably be thinking about. As a compromise back there is, well, he's going to die in prison anyway. Let's just, can we do the unthinkable? Can we do the thing that might get us criticized? <laughs> so. What is a reasonable doubt? Good job, Maria. Thank you. Thank you for your insight. Um, who else should I bring? We're going to bring some more people over. You don't want to get over? Yeah, let's get tons of people. Do you want to go? All right, all right, all right, all right. So my husband, I'm going to come over here, my husband Tim is not a lawyer, he is a high school counselor. Not a lawyer. Not a lawyer. But he's heard so much of this case from me, um, so I think he could make 
perhaps an educated decision as a potential juror. My very uneducated decision is that he is guilty. I think it's going to wind up being a hung juror. All right. All right. Heard it here first. <laughs> We're in a very tight space, if you can't tell. You should grab Patrick. We're grabbing another, another attorney. A non-attorney. Oh, a non-attorney. Different viewpoints for a lot of people here. This would be quite interesting. Um, so I also... I don't know. I don't know. I really go back and forth. Almost every day when we do a live and we're discussing, and then I watch it, and I don't really know what's going on. Let me get some of I think that the circumstantial evidence is really, really damning. Um, what I think really did it for me was when the OnStar data came out and he took the path uh, to Almeida and the phone was found, you know, in the in the woods um, along that route. That pretty much kind of solidified it with me on top of already the lies about not being there. The timeline is just so, so tight. The, the very short nap, the 20 seconds from when you pulled up and then you called 911, but yet you say that you checked pulse, rolled people over. It just all seems so, so wish-washy that I think I would have to go guilty. But, but there are days where I, I'm like, I don't know. We talk to our mother every day, and she, as proud as she is of what we do, she would 100% string him up, find him guilty, and give him a meal oh, any, yeah. any day of the week. Um, so we've got one more person coming. He's outside, and he'll be coming in in a second uh, as our non-lawyer representative in the lawyer bar. Do we want to talk about John Metter's claim? We do want to talk about John Metter's So we've tried cases against Metter's. We respect Metter's. He's probably the truest murder case trial lawyer involved in, amongst all the sides, and you can see that. He didn't have any notes. He came in late. He was just hired by the Attorney General's office right before the trial. Yeah, he was literally uh, poached for his trial abilities in this case. We were talking about it right again. He's going to do the closing, the final word of the jury. Um, and you can see what he brings to the table, which is a lot of emotion, a lot of drama. And some, he has sometimes been criticized for being dramatic at points when it doesn't really call for it, but this case is all about the drama. He brought a lot of homes, home, home, homespun wisdom, anecdotes, stories. I mean, life is all about storytelling. If you're not storytelling, then no one is listening to you. So, so he can do that. Um, now, he was attacking the other side. He was trying to get the jury to be inflamed by indignant by the fact that uh, the defense was putting his sweat on trial. How dare they? How dare they? Dare they? Life is about choices, so things of that nature. To really direct some rage against Murdoch and to say, look, y'all, bring your common sense. They're not in a driveway, but bring it with you all the way back into that jury room and send a message essentially. And so that's what he was there for. And he, he did what I expected a lot of inflection, change in tone, change in body posture. 
compete attention. So he certainly kept attention. And his relative, you know, 45 minute closing didn't feel that long. It did not feel like I aged 10 years. Well, that's because it was entertaining, right? I am going to pause real quick. So we are obviously at a, at a local bar in South Carolina um, with a lot of other attorneys. Um, Let's get a non-attorney And here. as it's getting later, it is getting louder. So we are going to try to be louder. We're going to try to squeeze in here. Um, thank you guys for letting Actually, us we're know. We're doing a live the TikTok. Is getting a little We've been too, doing too a loud. podcast and other things about the Murdoch trial. Right. Okay. And, 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 and you know, this doesn't help. Did you like that? Yeah. <laughs> so let's get Patrick. All right. So we've got another potential fake so monitor. Very smart guy, non-lawyer, former Coast Guard, former male model, long time ago. But he still got it. He still got it. Worked a lot for the federal government. Um, but so let's get a non-lawyer take. The question is, if you were sitting on that jury, based on what you know, would you convict or not? Well, I haven't been following it as closely as maybe I should. Okay. But I would say, you know, I saw some of your old podcasts. And uh, still got him. To me, he, he's a tough spot. So you think if you were on that jury with a decision, guilty box or not guilty, you'd be... Well, my, my feeling would be, well, if it wasn't him who did it, then who did it? Right. I mean, so, that's simple. I mean, so who you, else would have done right. this? With what motivation? I mean, it's either... I mean, the man is obviously not very, you know... Outstanding, I would say, citizen. No. All the things he did. Probably a lot of pressure. I mean, I think that there's too much evidence against him. So you check that guilty box. Um, I couldn't say that now because I didn't see everything. But based on what I did so see, I'd say that. Um, yeah, he, he looked pretty good. So kennel video, him down there a few minutes prior to their desk for the state. I mean, yeah. that would do it, right? I would say that uh, there is so much evidence against him, I'm not sure that there's any way he could defend it. So to me, if I'm a jury, we've got to be dead. So I think I think that puts our count at two not guilty from these two, and I guess that would mean four guilty. I'm I'm pretty pretty torn, honestly. I go back and forth every day. I change my mind. Well, let's talk about a legal issue. That, we will need to talk pretty loud. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one legal issue that was a problem that John Meadows did is right out of the gates when he was talking about what is murder and it, requires, it does require malice is the unlawful killing of another with malice a forethought, forethought. you got to kind of plan it even if shortly and he basically misstated the law to the jurors he said you know you can infer malice from the use of deadly weapons from the two long guns that were used in this case and that was the law about 10 years ago, but it's changed in South Carolina. And so really, I mean, what what lawyers say is not evidence, um, but he missed the law in a really big way, and Jim Griffin did not object. And you know what, what a lawyer should be doing in a moment like that is 
object and honestly ask for a mistrial. You're going to ask for a mistrial motion to preserve that moment for the, for the appellate courts. And I'm not sure if Jim Griffin did, wasn't aware of the change in the law or just didn't catch it. But that was a big moment today that was real, real problematic. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, in one sense, this case is, it's a whodunit. It's not, some cases, lawyers really argue about malice versus a lesser charge, like voluntary manslaughter in South Carolina, which doesn't require malice. That's your classic, I found my wife, you know, in bed with another man on, on my lunch break, and I just couldn't help but kill them. My passions were inflamed. It's not that case. The reason why it's so important is that jury's back there, they're horse trading. They're compromising. And some of them will go, well, look, fine. I think he probably did it. But man, they're talking about malice, talking about evil and this and that. And like, show me where the evil is. And then, so like, in that compromise, they can go, well, better said, the evil is allowed to be inferred just from the gun, guys. Come on. It's nuts. It used to be that way. Um, it's no longer inferred. The evil has to be from the evidence from your mind, your words, your actions, sure. What you do can infer malice, but it's not just simply because you shot somebody. That is not malice. It has to be a combination of things. So that was immediately objectionable. They should have moved for a mistrial. There's tons of legal error, but that really goes to kind of a post-conviction relief. That's ineffective assistance of counsel. If I'm looking at this case in five years and it will be on appeal, Somebody will be challenging the lawyer's job on this case, and it's their job to object to that. Because a jury can horse trade back there and go, Malice is the gun. Okay, we've answered that question. But Malice should be a very hard question to answer in any murder case. It's not just that you kill somebody, it's that you did it with Malice just before. So that was a huge issue that I immediately took to Twitter and got in some wars with people and got commented on. Um, but I also sent a screenshot of the case log. <laughs> so we've gotten a lot of comments today um, for us to drink. So we're going to cheers real quick to a fair trial. Fair trial. Fair trial. And um, to Bubba. To Bubba. Most importantly. Love that dog. Whatever data is on his GPS collar. We'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> never know. But it's, it's, it's a gold mine. <laughs> and for that we drink. Thanks for tuning in. Um, we've also got a lot of comments. Actually, wait, before we get to that, I want to circle back to kind of Luke, what you were talking about. So, Judge Newman laid it out, kind of plain and simple for everyone today, that Alec Murdoch is being charged with four different accounts. So, we've got. We've got the two different murder charges, so they're separating Paul and Maggie. Now, you all have actually tried a case before, not similar, but where someone is being charged on two different accounts of murder, um, and they were found guilty of one, but innocent of the other. I hope I'm allowed to say this right now. Um, talk to us about, like, what if that happened? What if this jury finds Alec Murdoch guilty of, let's say, Paul, but not of Maggie. You know, we've got this two-shooter theory. I'm still talking, and <laughs> go ahead. Well, that's what we call an inconsistent verdict, where the facts don't really demonstrate any 
difference between motive for the killings, between the, the two victims, or means or mechanisms, but yet the jury gets back there. And that's what Luke describes as like the horse trading, you know, the compromise that happens in the jury room. And we did have a trial recently where that did occur. And you know, we were arguing self-defense essentially in defense of one's home. And but there was a close contact uh, wound, gunshot wound to the head, just like in this case. And so basically, if you believe defense, correct. Um, and so the jury clearly made a. I mean, both victims were entering the home under the same facts. So there's nothing to distinguish them really. And so the jury made a compromise, and, and the, the victim that had the head wound. Um, our client was found guilty, and the victim that did not, we, we, you know, our client was acquitted of that murder. So we would not expect to see that in this case, right? Because whoever killed Maggie and Paul did it at the same time under the same circumstances. It's not a self-defense case. It's not a case of a lesser mental state. It's either they did it or they did not. And so if they're finding. You know, acquittal on one and then guilty on the other is pure compromise. And it really doesn't matter because murder in South Carolina carries 30 years minimum to life in prison. So I tell you what, if Judge Newman gets a murder on Paul but I'm not guilty on Maggie, he's still sentencing to life. Right. Um, well, I don't want to say that. On average with Judge Newman, he's sentenced to 35. But it was a self-defense case. It was baked into the case that our guy was in bed, literally, when he thought he was being home invaded. So it's not just an out of the blue kind of random killing that if, if you think you have the right person, that's a very bad malicious act. Um, so I think Newman would give, under these circumstances, if he only found one verdict of, of guilty, he would probably like Murdoch up on that just alone. So it really doesn't matter if that occurred. That's very unlikely to occur. That would be bizarre in this case. So I know we are aware that the noise is getting pretty loud. We are again at a bar for those of you who haven't been joining from the beginning. Um, we do have one last burning question of who would play who in uh, the movie of this case. I believe, first of all, that Alec Murdoch would be best portrayed by Jesse Clemens. Um, I know you guys kind of gave some insight of who you would think. Uh, what was the... Oh, I, I said that Billy Bob Thornton yeah, Billy Bob would Thornton. play the groundskeeper pretty well, or the kennelkeeper. You know, it's... You have to have a real, a real sharp kind of player to play Dick. You have to have a more cerebral guy to play Jim Griffin. I think John Metters, I mean, Dick. I think I mean, Mandy uh, Matney, who's a journalist locally who's covered this from the start, put something kind of funny on um, Twitter today saying that she always thinks Griffin looks like the guy from The Office with the bald head. What's his name? Toby? Yeah, let's see. Um, let me see if I can figure it out. Morgan Freeman for Judge Newman. Ooh, that'd be good. Ooh, that'd, be good. that'd be very good. Great call. Or, you know who would have been good? Stacy Matthews. Great call. Remember Sidney Portier? He would have been good for Judge Jimmy, too. Alec Baldwin to play Alex? I really like Jesse Clemens. Do y'all know who Jesse Clemens is? Have you seen Friday Night Lights? 
You know Landry, the quarterback's best friend? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm going to show you guys Jesse Plymouth. This I haven't pulled up, so make sure. Landry. I think he would be a great Alex. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got such a kind face. Uh, well, he was also in Breaking Bad. Look, I feel like, or maybe Buster. I don't know. What if they, um, just really, the guy, the actor from Dexter, just make him, <laughs> make him be Murdoch, that sinister kind of vibe about it. Yeah, that'd be good. Who would play Harper Lane? Someone wants to know, are you two twins? Yes, yes they are yes, twins. Brian is eight minutes older, and we decided last night, well, we didn't decide, but we came, we figured out that they are Libras. Now, peacemakers, which is great for attorneys. Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, local judges call me the bad twin, he's the good twin. And, well, Correct. Correct. The reason for that we'll discuss on a, another episode. Is that bad twin sounds? Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's not a curse word. What? We'll, we'll, we'll share that content later. Alright. <laughs> Who wants to know We'll see. Uh, a lot of votes for Alec Baldwin. For who? For, uh, I think Alec Murdoch. Uh, who's the other guy? Creighton Waters. Yeah, Creighton Waters. Let's, uh, let's hear his name. Edward Norton? Mmm, no. Steve Buscemi? <laughs> People want to know who's a better uh, poker player between the two of you. Me. Me for sure. Luke has, Luke People has, guess that Brian would be. Luke has no <laughs> poker face. I have a very emotive face. Luke spills all the secrets. Uh, I don't spill secrets, but I don't hold back on how I actually feel. So, if I'm feeling like I got a, a good hand, you're going to know it. Uh, yeah, just keep firing off any questions that you guys have. We'll just be here enjoying our, uh, our Guinness. Um, Lively here. Maybe we have some other jurors or potential jurors that we have. Who's um? Sasha here. Do you guys know Alex Murdoch personally? No. 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 It is very likely that you know someone that knows the family. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'll just let that rest there. That's, a, that's confirmed. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we know all the lawyers, all the judges, judge. But um, I do have a standing appointment. I do need to talk to the bar. We, we do have a legal appointment that we need to cover here at the bar. How, how does that work with our live video, Anna? I mean, we can call it for tonight if we want, or we could uh, we could also do the legal appointment live. No, we can't do some case details. Case details that we can't discuss. Um, well, we could call it for tonight. Maybe we'll pop on later. Um, later will be way more lively. And we're, and we're now in deliberation countdown mode. Yes. So we can talk about what that means and what the next steps are for the jury, you know, what they're allowed to do, what kind of notes they're allowed to give, what kind of questions they're allowed to give. You know, Judge Newman does give them the law in written form back to the jury room 
Um, and he's very rare in terms of South Carolina state court judges don't typically do that. So he likes to do that. And so that, you know, most of the questions that you'll see from the jurors are either asking the judge to reread the law because they're kind of debating about what was uh, written, uh, given to them, or they want to hear like a portion of the transcript played back. And so here we will, we will not have any questions about the law because they have it literally in their hands. From a lawyer perspective, this moment right now, if you have your jury out, is extremely stressful. Because you don't have anything to do except think the worst for your perspective position, and you can't go very far. So you're not going to like go and relax. The judge has your cell phone. If you get a call from his clerk, it means you can rush in there and deal with either a question or a verdict um, or a legal issue. And so you just on pins and needles of pure and utter agony um, right now. So I will have a drink for all those lawyers right now because I know exactly how they feel. To those lawyers, regardless of what side you're on, you all put in a good shift. Comment that says we have to finish the beers on the live. That's just TikTok rules. Oh, really? And we are close. Luckily, they're not full. Very close. We are very close. Um, we've got a lot of more questions, probably from people joining us a little bit later. Um, if you believe Alec Murdoch to be guilty or not guilty, we, we have kind of fleshed this out. But summarized version, not the Creighton Waters version, is very concise. Summarized version is. <laughs> Not four hour long. He didn't do the killing, but he knows very likely who did it because he brought that storm upon his, his doorstep. Right. I, I'm looking at him. I know he's a liar. I know he's a thief. I don't view him as a killer. I think his actions brought this down. Somebody bad due to his drug dealings sent him a message, wanted to punish him. I think he very well knows who it is. The motive doesn't make sense to me for all the reasons we've been discussing. Uh, all it did was expose all this. I don't think any of this would have ever been uncovered as financial crimes had he not you know, had this killing happen. I think his firm, which is super powerful, super rich, super reputable, would have covered this up, paid off the debts, put him on a long-term repayment plan, and probably fired him. Or maybe not, because that would look too obvious. It's, so I think he just, it makes no sense to the track. All it did was attract attention. I, for me, it was the OnStar data that came forward. Um, it was kind of the nail in the coffin for me, um, in alignment with where Maggie's cell phone was found, just after already knowing like the lies that had been told about Snapchat and his location at that time. Um, that had me leaning really far towards guilty. Um, there are obviously moments and days where I'm thinking, you know, maybe not, there is this reasonable doubt, um, but the circumstantial evidence is pretty powerful. Uh, I would probably have to say guilty. Whether he himself killed Maggie and Paul, um, I believe he knows who did, and I believe that he has something to do with why they have been killed. So, whether he arranged a hit or shot one, I don't know. I don't know, but 
that those are our thoughts. We have to finish this We have beer. to finish these beers on camera. Go ahead and subscribe to our social medias, whether it be Instagram, TikTok, or anything like that, so that when we do go live, you can tune in and join us and perhaps crack a beer yourself. And until then, we will see you all next time. Thanks Cheers. so much. Cheers, everybody.